it. <laughs> Azim Kamisa experienced the most horrific of experiences, the murder of his beautiful son, Tariq. It's unspeakable. And it set him on a journey of peace. And it's chronicled in his trilogy of books, Murder to Forgiveness, Forgiveness to Fulfillment, Fulfillment to Peace. And his latest book, The Secrets of the Bulletproof Spirit, is a must read. It's an instruction manual on how to be spiritually resilient in today's world. I first met Azim at Pacific Church when he was on the cover of the Science of Mind magazine after it chronicled his story. And then I think the last time up at the Asilomar Conference grounds. And he is a man of peace. He absolutely is walking the path. So before I invite him up here to the, to the podium, um, he wants to share with us this brief video. So get comfortable, and then, um, and then we'll get to hear Azim Kamisa speak. Thank you. Time now for our Friday Making a Difference report and the story of a man whose capacity for forgiveness is astonishing. He suffered the worst loss a parent can ever face, and yet he decided to turn his grief into something positive for himself and a troubled young man. Here's NBC's John Larson. A documentary began the story like this. 14-year-old Tony Hicks shot and killed 20-year-old Tariq Kamisa. A 14-year-old murders a promising young college student for the cost of a pizza and becomes the youngest child in California history charged as an adult with murder and gets life in prison. It was like a nuclear bomb going off in my heart. Azim Kamisa, the father of the victim, buried his only son, Tariq, according to their Muslim custom. He climbed down into the muddy grave. It had been raining, and they lowered his son's body wrapped in a white cloth down into his open arms. Yeah, I didn't want to leave him there alone. I stayed there a long time. When something bad happens, you can stop really? that bad from happening to other people. But when he finally came up, he did something remarkable. It is wrong to lie to cheat. First, he forgave the family of the killer. It was a defining moment in my life. Only through that forgiveness. Which in turn helped Azim start the Tariq Kamisa Foundation, speaking together to more than a million children about the real pain of violence. And sometimes it scars the soul forever. Then, Azim visited Tony Hicks, the killer, who had never had a father, and forgave him too. His forgiveness was some, wasn't something I expected. Now Azim is lobbying to have Tony released from prison early like he was his own son. And when he gets out of prison, what do you hope for him? We'll have a job for him at the foundation. So you're, you're going to hire him? Absolutely. This is the killer of your son? Yes. Tony says now he knows what a real father is. I had a man forgive me for taking the life of his son. And he will work for that father, and for many who maybe never had fathers, someday, whether he gets out early or not.
John Larson, NBC News, San Diego, California. Thank you. Greetings. Namaste. Good morning. I think we should uh, give some more love to Michael and our musicians here today. Yeah? So I thought I might start uh, with a prayer from my tradition. I practice as a Sufi Muslim, and it is from the Prophet's dua. The word dua is Arabic for prayer. And I'll say it in Arabic first and then translate it in English. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Allahumma anta salam wa minke salam. Wa leka jau salam. Hina rabna bi salam. What In the name of Allah, the most beneficent and the most merciful. O Allah, O our Lord, thou art the peace. From thee is the peace, and to thee returneth the peace. O Allah, O our Lord, give us a life of peace and usher us into the abode of peace. I think we all want peace. And the central question in front of us today is how do we get to peace with the media and the social media and the souls we get on 24-7 about all the negative stuff that is going on in our world. But as is evident from the video, mine is a personal story. And as Reverend Patty described, that my trilogy basically tracks a 20-plus year journey that started very dark with murder, but ended in peace. So I want to share my journey. And I remember that when I've, I've been an avid writer, I've authored four books, I'm working on my fifth one, and I also keep a journal. And I remember after Tariq died, uh, I made this entry in my journal, that there's nothing quite so painful as a broken heart. There's nothing quite so painful as a broken heart, but a broken heart is an open heart. If one can learn to live with an open heart, gentle transformations begin to manifest. So part of my mission this morning, I know all of you have very big and open hearts, and the music we got from Michael opened your hearts even more. But my goal is to even open your hearts even more. Because we humans have many defining moments in our lives. Some of these events are joyous. Some of them are devastatingly tragic, as was the case in my life. 
But at these defining moments, if you are able to make the right choice, we not only manifest a miracle in us, but we also manifest a miracle in others. Think about it. Every saint has has suffered the dark night of the soul. And sometimes in those dark nights of the soul, in those deep tragedies, there is a spark of clarity. And the spark of clarity in my tragedy was that I was able to see that there were victims at both ends of the gun. It's a great quote from Henry David Thoreau that says, it does not matter what you look at, what really matters is what you see. And I was able to see that the enemy was not the young 14-year-old who murdered my son. Rather, the societal forces that force many young men to fall through the crack and choose lives of gangs and drugs and alcohol and weapons and crime. When you could take the position, he killed my one and only son, he should be hung from the highest pole. Well, how does that improve society? Now, this wisdom that I got that there were victims at both ends of the gun, it did not come from my intellect or my loving heart. Rather, it was a download from a higher power. And I'm so glad to see that so many of you are working in connecting to that higher power. The music and the mission and the vision and the prayers all confirm that. I started to meditate when I was 20 years old. I lost Tariq in my early 40s. So I had a pretty strong basis. And I can tell you that in my deepest crisis, which was losing Tariq, my degrees in math and finance were pretty useless. And I went to some pretty good schools in England. It's a great quote from Einstein that says, we must take care not to make intellect our God. Sure, it has powerful muscles, but no personality. It cannot lead, it can only serve. This is Einstein. So in life you're going to get problems that your intellect will not be able to solve, even though you might have a double PhD. In life you're going to get problems, your hearts are not going to be able to heal, then where are you? But by the same token, there are no problems that you're going to get in your life And I want to underscore that, that no problems you're going to get in your life that your spirit cannot solve or heal. But you have to have that spiritual foundation, which is what you're working on. And that's the point of my book that Reverend mentioned, The Secrets of the Bulletproof Spirit, How to Bounce Back from Life's Hardest Hits. Because truly, I wouldn't be in front of you without that spiritual foundation. So needless to say, there is, it's, it's highly complex and complicated to lose a child for any parents. What is the worst nightmare? And 
and he was a good kid. He was a student at San Diego State University, and uh, he was a great writer, a good photographer, gifted with a great sense of, a great, had a great sense of, you know, wit and humor, and uh, a joy to be around. Uh, his ambition someday was to work for National Geographic. He loved cultures. He loved to travel. And his hero was Gandhi, a man of peace. And he worked Fridays and Saturdays for a local uh, family restaurant called Damili. Some of you might know the restaurant. as a pizza delivery man. It was lured to a bogus address at, uh, in North Park. And they gave the right address of the building, but the wrong apartment number. So he went and knocked on many apartment doors to see who'd ordered the pizza. Of course, nobody had. So he came back to his car. He put the pizzas in the trunk of his car. He climbed into the driver's side seat. And as he was about to leave the scene of the crime, he was accosted by four youth gang members. Three of them were 14-year-old. And the leader of the gang was an 18-year-old who handed a 9-millimeter handgun. And as my son is trying to back his car from the driveway of the apartment building, the gang leader gave him the order, bust him bones. He fired one round, which came through the driver's side window entered my son's body right here under the left shoulder blade. The bullet actually traveled across the upper part of his chest and it exited from his right armpit. And as the coroner later explained to me, he said, the bullet followed a perfect path. A perfect path I thought that was an interesting choice of words. But he was very quick to tell me that, Mr. Kamisa, I'm not trying to be insensitive. We really do not see a path like this very often. And what it means in my lingo is that it destroyed all the vital organs in your son's body. And Tariq died. A couple of minutes later, drowning in his own blood over a lousy pizza at the age of 20. The sudden, senseless death of an innocent, unarmed human being the overwhelming grief of a family, the total confusion as you try to absorb a new hideous reality. Tomorrow is the 24th anniversary of this tragedy. And even though it's been that long, those early days are etched deeply on my heart on my mind and my soul. And I remember one of the hardest things I've ever had to do was to call his mother. I live here. She lived in Seattle, Washington. It's quite far. And I had to do this over the telephone. Tariq had a very special relationship with his mom. 
I too have a very special relationship with my mom, which I lost a year ago in April. Now think about it. How do you tell a mother that she's never, ever going to see her son again? Or hear him laugh? Or give him a hug? How do you do that? And it took me a while. And when I did share with her what had happened, she let out this loud piercing shriek as she hit the floor. I could actually hear her hit the floor on the phone. And I finished a very broken conversation with one of her brothers. And when I repeat this story, I can hear her scream in my inner ear. It probably haunt me for the rest of my life. Now, you're probably wondering, why am I sharing this painful experience with you? And why I often share it with the programs we do with kids? For one reason. Sometimes you don't know how painful violence is till it crosses your path. At least I didn't. But now, I really get how painful violence is. And because I really, really, really get how painful violence is, I would never in my life be violent to another sister or another brother. And I think it's important we all get it, young and old, because there's way too much violence in our society. We've had a mass killing in 2018 pretty much every single day. In in, in Newtown, Connecticut, five, six, seven-year-olds were gunned down in machine gun fire. They had a lot of living to do. So nine months after Tariq died, to honor him and to help our family deal with this tragedy in a positive way, And having learned the horrific statistics, which I'm sure that all of you are familiar with, I decided to form the Tariq Kamisa Foundation. Because I got that there were victims at both ends of the gun. Tariq was a victim of the 14-year-old. The 14-year-old was a victim of society, of American society. And the question I asked is, How did we, as a society, create a culture where children kill children? What is our individual responsibility? Societies just do not happen, Stans. Every one of us who is an American is responsible for the society we've created. And children killing children is not a mark of a civil society. We like to think we're a civil society. So I felt as an American... And I'm a naturalized first-generation American. I felt as an American, I must take my share of the responsibility for the bullet that took my son's life. Why? Because it was fired by an American child. So I started with a very simple premise that violence is a learned behavior. No child is born violent. Tony wasn't born violent. 
But if you accept that violence is a learned behavior, as a truism, then it follows that nonviolence can also be a learned behavior. But you have to teach it because kids are not going to learn nonviolence through osmosis. And the initial mandate of the foundation was to stop kids from killing kids by breaking the cycle of youth violence and essentially had three goals. First and foremost, to save lives of children. Important to do, because we lose so many on a daily basis. Our second goal was to make sure that we empower them with the right choices so they don't fall to the crack and choose lives of gangs and crimes and drugs and alcohol and weapons. And our third principle was to teach the principles of nonviolence, to teach empathy, to teach compassion, to teach forgiveness, to commit to peacemaking and peace building. So we're not going to wake up one morning and find out that we are at peace. It's a proactive effort that we must all engage ourselves with. And soon after I started the foundation, I asked the district attorney, Paul Finks was our district attorney at that time, to introduce me to the grandfather and guardian of my son's killer. You met him on the video. And we met in the office of uh, Henry Coker, who was a public defender that defended Tony. And I said to him that I'm not here screaming retribution and revenge and hatred and anger and resentment because your grandson killed my son. Rather, I'm here in the compassion I'm here in compassion and forgiveness because what I really see here is we both lost a son. My son died, and you lost your grandson, although it was like a son to him because he lived with his grandfather, to the adult criminal justice system. He was the first 14-year-old in our state of California to be tried as an adult. There's nothing I can do to bring my son back from the dead. He's gone gone forever. There's nothing you can do to get Tony out of prison. And I started this foundation with a very lofty mission of stopping kids from killing kids. I can't do this by myself. So the real reason I've come to ask you is, will you help me? And it behooves us to work together because it was your grandson that killed my son. Well, I can't bring my son back from the dead. You can't do anything to get Tony out of prison. The one thing you and I can do is to make sure others in our community don't suffer what you and your family have or what I and my family have. That we can do. Will you help me? And he was very quick to take my hand of forgiveness. And the first thing out of his mouth was, Azim, thank you for reaching out to me. Ever since I found out that my grandson was responsible for the death of your son, I went into the prayer closet. Place grew up as a Baptist from the South. Praying that someday I get a chance to meet you 
so I can extend my condolences to you and your family. And of course, I will help you. I would never have met this man had his grandson not kill my son. Very different. He's African-American. Although I always kid him, I said, please, I was born in Kenya. I'm the African-American in this group, not you. And I grew up as a Christian. I practiced as a Muslim. His kid killed my son, and we are brothers. 24 years later, we're still together. We've reached over a million kids, and through media, we've reached probably more like 8 million kids. And when, we're in, when we're in schools, we are in a live assembly, we are introduced. This man's grandson killed this man's son, and here they are. Here they are as compassionate brothers. It's an amazing visual. And you're welcome to come to one of our assemblies. Some of you probably have. I recognize a couple of you that have come to our assembly. It's life-changing. We specialize. We have a safe school model, which has four different programs. The first one is a live assembly. And we specialize from fifth grade to ninth grade because the kid who killed my son joined a gang in sixth grade and killed my son in eighth grade. And now we are very actively what they call restorative practices restorative justice is now in vogue. But we've been doing this for 23 plus years. And it's working. Not only are we teaching the principles of nonviolence, we're cutting truancies by 92%. We're cutting expulsions and suspensions by 70%. I mean, think about it. <laughs> if you expel a kid or suspend a kid, guess where he ends up in, 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 in the systems. So, with the grace of God, it is working. Five years after Tariq died, I went to meet the young man who killed my son. You met him on the video. It took five years. Very difficult to come eyeball to eyeball with the person who pulled the trigger on your son. I mean, after all, we are mortals. And it took many thousand hours of meditation, but I understood that for me to complete my journey of forgiveness, at some point I had to come eyeball to eyeball with Tony. He was at the New Folsom Prison. I asked the grandfather to go with me because we'd been working together for a good four and a half years. I told him, I'd like you to introduce me to Tony, but then I really need alone time with Tony because you are his grandfather. There are some holes in the story only he can complete. And if you are there, then he's going to be defensive. So the grandfather was very gracious. We started with Tony. First 15 minutes, we talked about Tony's life in prison. He left us alone. And Tony and I talked man to man for an hour and a half. And I clearly remember, although it was 19 years ago, because he's 38 years old now, I clearly remember that at that one point in that hour and a half, and he was able to fill the holes in my story, but we locked eyeballs. I'm looking in his, eye, in his eyes, and he's holding my eyes, and we held a glance for what seemed like a very long time. And we weren't far from each other. We're just sitting across a coffee table. And I'm looking in his eyes, trying to find a murderer. And I didn't. I was able to climb through his eyes and touch his humanity that I got that the spark in him 
was no different than the spark in me or any one of you. He was well-mannered. He was remorseful. He was articulate. He was well-spoken. And he didn't portray any of the typical attitudes of a 19-year-old in our society. I could tell that my hand of forgiveness had also shifted him. He's a likable kid. If you walked through those doors, you would have the same impression of him as I did. I wasn't expecting that. So at that point, I told him, Tony, you know I have forgiven you because I've been working with your grandfather for a good four years. I also want you to know that when you come out of prison, you have a job at the Tari Kamisa Foundation. And you can come work with your grandfather and me. And after about a couple of hours, I left, and I still clearly remember that as I was leaving the prison, my stride leaving the prison was a lot more bouncier than the one I came in with. Forgiveness can be very freeing. It's like a big weight that was lifted off my shoulder, and I wondered, why did I wait five years? The next day, the grandfather calls me, says, Azim, that that meeting you had with Tony yesterday was totally transformative. He always used to tell me, Daddy, I'm not going to make it in prison. He's a young, charismatic, good-looking kid in an adult prison. I don't want to tell you what that means. He said, but after you gave him some love and some hope, he's totally changed because as you were leaving, he says, Daddy, that's a special man. Not only have, has he forgiven me, he's offered me a job. I'm not worthy of his forgiveness. I'm not worthy of his job offer, but I'm going to try. At 22, he aced his GED. In my trilogy, which is the last book of my trilogy, From Fulfillment to Peace, he actually wrote the foreword to that book and did a great job. He's 38 years old. November 28th, a couple of months ago, I was there advocating for his parole, and he won parole. But he still has a couple more hoops to go through. They have four months for the entire parole board to, to essentially endorse it. And then the governor has to sign off on it. But I'm told that those are more rubber stamp kind of things. And hopefully he'll join us in April or May of next year. And then when he's ready, he'll come work for the foundation. Now think about it. When he's on stage with, the, with his grandfather and me and he tells the kids, when I was 11, I joined a gang. When I was 14, I killed Mr. Kamisa's son. I spent the last umpteen years in prison. I wish I could turn the clock back. Do you think the kids will listen to that voice? Yes, because his intonations will be of a person that pulled the trigger that truly wants to turn the clock back. You saved him. Think about how many kids he will save that may be thinking about following his former footsteps. I think that adequately shows you the power of forgiveness. So let me finish by a quote that I wrote. Actually, I wrote it after 9-11 because I went into this very deep, deep space. Everybody knows exactly where they were in 9-11. 
and I couldn't get because the perpetrators came from my faith and I couldn't get how they could use the faith to perpetrate this atrocity where the same faith helped me to get to forgiveness. I mean, all faiths teach compassion and forgiveness. Islam is no different. I stayed in this space for six months, which actually is, the ba- this quote is the basis of my book, From Fulfillment to Peace. And what came to me is this quote that I like to end the message. It's a good takeaway message, I believe. It's about peace. So sustained goodwill creates friendship. Now, that ought to be obvious. You make friends by extending goodwill, not bombing them, right? So sustained goodwill creates friendship. Sustained friendship creates trust. Sustained trust creates empathy. Sustained empathy creates compassion. And sustained compassion creates peace. I call it my peace formula. Goodwill, friendship, trust, empathy, compassion, peace. But people ask me, how do you extend goodwill to the person who murdered your child? I said, you do that through forgiveness. I said, evident it worked for me, it worked for my family. What I believe is a miracle that it worked for him. And his family can work for you. And your families. And Israel and Palestine and North and South Korea and Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq and Iran. It can work for the US of A. It can work for the planet. So my sisters and brothers, let me leave you with this, that peace is possible. How do I know that? Because I am at peace. Good morning and namaste.